Well, thank you for making the time to do this. You know, we met once, I don't know if you recall, I believe it was at the Emory Conference on Marriage, Family, and the Religious Yes, that was quite an event. Yes, it was. I'm involved with the follow-up now. I know. We might get to talk about that. Let me tell you that I, um, in the last couple of days, I had a huge stack of your books, and I ended up sort of thinking that we'll focus on the, the book you wrote, The Protestant Voice of American Pluralism. That as a sort of theme, which is somewhat contained, but within which I think we can go anywhere we mm-hmm. want to go in talking sure. about how you've experienced the life of the church in, in, in your own life and in this country um, in all the work you've done. Okay. Okay. And, and, uh, but I do believe in a real conversation, which may surprise us, and that will be a fine thing. <laughs> Um, Mitch, would you need to hear him? Okay. I, I don't want to talk about anything substantive yet, so tell me uh, what you had for lunch today. A very bad lunch. I had a wonderful late 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock. I went to the dedication of a new pipe organ, and it was transcendently beautiful. And then we went to a seminary cafeteria and had that kind of food. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Let, let's just get going. Um I'd like to start, I have read some of your autobiographical writings, but I'd like to hear a little bit more than than I can read in them about your religious upbringing, um, the religious sensibility in which you were raised. I am Nebraska-born, a small town in the Depression and drought and dust bowl. My father was a teacher, actually, in the Lutheran school, and... uh, in a sense, uh, was honored as a professional in the town. Uh, He was also an organist, and I've carried a lifelong love of the pipe organ with it. Uh, My mother, a farm girl, who had a great amount of curiosity. Hmm. We were a churched family, of course. It was my father's profession and uh, so on. I've reminisced with some folks about how I got babysat next to the organ bench and had to sit through long funerals as a child and somehow... Uh, It didn't turn me off from it all. I have a brother and a sister, and the three of us were well-schooled in literature and music and art, and also a very close basic sense of the faith of ordinary people. And I've tried to keep some sense of that in my my life work. Hmm. In my high school years, I was um, shipped off from the little tiny town high school to what the Lutherans used, Catholics would know the word minor seminary. gives you a head start on hmm. seminary. Uh, you start learning Latin early. I had four years of Greek before I got to seminary. Uh, it was a well-grounded classical education. I didn't like the environment. It was all male. It was all inbred. But I escaped. It was in Milwaukee and went regularly to Milwaukee Public Library, and I had the resolve to read the modern poetry section straight through. I think I got up to about the letter C, <laughs> but that was that was my goal. Uh, I had a roommate who was a philosopher, and he only needed A for Aristotle and P for Plato, which he was reading in Greek. Just to skip over the story, by the way, um, we both married, and I was widowed, and he died very young. And years later, I am now married to his widow. Oh, so uh, that's a little bit of interwebbing. <laughs> okay, and he was one of the, he was one of the two smartest people I've ever known. Huh. The other is somebody you've had on this program, Jaroslav Pelikan. And between the two of them, I always had good reasons to feel inferior and to have aspiration. <laughs> you were in um, school with Pelikan. 
Uh, he was actually my teacher. He's about four years older than oh, I. Oh, right. But he was a child genius, and uh, <laughs> and so he was way ahead of the game. But we've been friends all the years, mm. and uh, I've known him well. And as I say, I don't know anybody who handles the languages and historical knowledge the way he does. Mm. And now, in in your book, the now well, I want to ask you what can I ask what year you were born? Nineteen twenty eight. Twenty eight. Okay. And uh, you know, in in your your uh, book or your s- series of lectures, which were brought together in a book called "The Protestant Voice of American Pluralism," you you describe a, a, a very wide swath of American history from sixteen oh seven to nineteen fifty five as in the age when Protestants ran the show, and and I wonder if you could, you would say what that meant, you know, in your years of growing up in that sort of. Uh, second quarter of the 20th century. What did that were Protestants running the show really look like in daily life? It didn't look like that where I lived because in those little towns you were either Catholic or Lutheran and Lutherans didn't consider themselves Protestants and Catholics didn't notice us. So <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't a very big part of the show. But um, as I grew, I went to college and graduate school and there, of course, I was very much involved with it. And after World War II, there was quite a an exuberance, a boom. I have books called Protestant Panorama. Mm-hmm. They were running the show. Uh, everybody in the president's cabinet was that. Uh, most senators, most people in Congress were. Um, the uh, movies, though they were made by uh, Jews, the Hollywood movies of the 20s and 30s, really created the myth of small-town America, and it was always Protestant-looking unless it had Bing Crosby in it. So that was um, the, the theme and uh, I don't think I ever started by deciding I was going to talk about po- Protestantism, but I wanted to deal with the whole American story. Right, right. No, yes. And but I mean, I think that's a memory. It's a memory now. It's it's not a, a uh, something that people growing up have a consciousness of. And when you describe that Protestant America, um, was it as much felt religiously as it was cultural? Yes, I think so. And that may be a little hard to imagine today because it doesn't have the same kind of power it did then. Uh, I studied under Daniel Borston, later Librarian of Congress, and he pointed out that you can not really well write the history of a phenomenon until its vital life is passed. <laughs> there were no good histories of slavery until long after uh, slavery was passed. And I think that it's that kind of thing. Now, Protestantism is anything but past. Certainly 25% of the American people right. call themselves Protestant. Another 25% call themselves evangelical, and that's Protestant too. So uh, about half of the American people would be tabbed that way. But I don't think many of them wake up in the morning and are saying, I'm a Protestant. Mm-hmm. They'll say, I'm an evangelical, or I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Lutheran. Um, and I think the, one of the reasons for that is Protestantism was a more useful name before the Second Vatican Council, mm. before Pope John Twenty-Third, because at that time, Protestantism uh, had an enemy. And one of the problems, I think, with mainline Protestantism today is it, it's too friendly with Catholicism. I love it, <laughs> but they are. And one thing that holds a group together is to have a common enemy, uh, and Protestantism started lacking that. But um, in the 1950s, the... Uh, Prestigious seminaries were Protestant mm-hmm. uh, in any any city. I don't care if it's Boston or Phoenix. If something happens in the world and the newspaper wanted to know what the religion thought about it, they would call a congregational minister or a Presbyterian minister 
they wouldn't call a Pentecostal or an African American or a woman. <laughs> These were Protestant mm-hmm. men. Um, so they just towered. And you just took them for granted. Again, even though nobody was a member of Protestantism, that was a name given to a cluster of churches and a culture. I, you know, yeah, and I guess what I'm getting at is is how you would describe the way in which a Protestant sensibility sort of infused ordinary life in this country. I mean, you're right that these categories still exist, and Protestantism is, of course, very much alive. But Protestantism as a force, um, how that was different 25, 50, 25 to 50 years ago. I think, first of all, it was in force as an interpretation of life. That is, if there was a war, it was Protestants who were giving an interpretation to it. When World War I broke out, uh, Catholics had not organized at all, and the uh, chaplaincy would go to the Federal Council of Churches, which was all Protestant, hmm. and say, give us chaplains. Catholics had to organize quickly in order to have someone for the government to deal with. It wouldn't have occurred to them before then. Uh, who's who in the 1930s had only a few Catholic names. Uh, everybody else was white Protestant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the early editions of Morrison Commager's book on the American mind has only one non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestant name in it, and that's F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was probably the most waspish of them all. <laughs> well, today you'd have Tony Morrison, you'd have Saul Bellow, mm-hmm. uh, you'd have the whole range and these Protestants, white Protestants, would, well, who is there? John Updike, uh, formerly John Cheever. It's just not a big thing that way. Mm-hmm. Now, religiously, again, if there were civic ceremonies, uh, you had a, a Protestant minister. The chaplains of the House and the Senate uh, until the last couple of years were always Protestant mm-hmm. or, in recent years, Protestant evangelical. So in all public ceremonies... Little League Banquet, uh, 4th of July, or whatever, uh, the Protestant minister or lay leader was uh, the spokesperson for, quote, religion. Yeah. I mean, even I'm remembering the presidents of major universities, even universities that we consider now to be very secular, like Yale and Harvard, were for a long time ordained ministers, weren't they? Yes. uh, Religious groups formed virtually all of the... Right private universities, and even the early public ones. The University of Michigan, for a while, thought uh, it had to have a minister of each denomination on the board. I think they stopped at 13 and just gave up (laughs) and removed them all in the end. But, um, yes, that was very common. Until the 1880s or so at Harvard, Mm -hmm. uh, Princeton kept it well into the last century. Uh, Now it's interesting that many of those universities had uh, Jewish quotas into the 1950s, <laughs> the end of the Protestant mm-hmm. era. Right. And today, almost all of them have a Jewish president. So that's how sudden that kind of change came to. Right. And, you know, I'd like to zero in on, on the 1960s, which this absolutely pivotal decade uh, in, our, in our country's life. And it's often struck me that the way the 60s are remembered with broad brush strokes are... It would be the Vietnam War, right? It would be civil rights. It would be heading into women's rights um, and this, the civil unrest. But what I'm aware of and what you write about in many of your works is, are all, is all the incredible religious upheaval in that time also, all the, the very important religious events that aren't always on a map when people talk about what happened in the 1960s. And um, and I'd like to sort of be there in the 60s with you for right. a minute. Um, yeah. I mean, what do you think of when you think of what happened in this country religiously in that decade? What comes to mind? The biggest single event that hit this country happened in Rome, and that's the Second Vatican Council. That is, 
um, Protestantism always knew what it was because it knew what Catholicism was, and it was over against that. Suddenly, Catholicism is friendly. It moves out into the public sector. The GI Bill puts Catholic uh, young people into universities. Uh, they soon became the most educated group in the country, and Protestants were thrown off balance by that. Secondly, it's the beginning of the surge of evangelicalism within Protestantism, right. which uh, in those days, I imagine a lot of the Protestant leaders, well, I recall them, kind of sneered at Billy Graham and looked down their nose at uh, tent revivals and so on, and didn't pay much attention to see how it was coming. And suddenly in the 60s, um, I visited Berkeley, you had uh, the Jesus people, um, mm-hmm. Little girls getting baptized in their bikinis <laughs> and uh, godlike male athletes uh, there. A war protest certainly was a part of it. Now, here I would have to say an awful lot of Protestantism was uh, in the leadership of the war protest, uh, even if some major Protestant lay people had helped produce it. The best and the brightest were often Protestant. Um, but it's in nature, a change of worship from a certain kind of formality to um, rock bands were coming in. Etc. And another huge infusion was an awareness of the religions of the East. Mm-hmm. You might keep going to your Presbyterian church, but you start doing yoga and you start uh, doing Buddhist disciplines, etc. And you didn't stop being Presbyterian, but you were of a different sort. You didn't take it all for granted. I don't think anyone in any town would have known what a guru was in the 50s. In the 60s, you all had to have your guru. (laughs) And um, transcendental meditation came along. So actually, there were two extremes there, and they both hit Protestantism hard. The one was uh, more violent. Uh, The Protestantism we're talking about was generally quite staid. You didn't have demonstrations. That was something for immigrant laborers to do. Um, You were very staid, and suddenly your own kids are leading these protests. And the other, the soft revolution, was uh, drugs, LSD, um, uh, Woodstock, and so on. And they all had their religious analogs. And who gets hit hardest by that are the most established groups hmm. whose the young people... Es- okay. The most established yeah, the religious most established. groups. Right. That's right. And it's their young people that rebelled against dad mm-hmm. and against people over 30. Uh, they didn't have monopoly on that. But the Protestant empire had the most to lose by this sudden change. And, you know, no, we don't have to st- stick narrowly to what was going on with Protestantism, but, you know, how how these things were affecting our, our, our culture as a whole. I mean, I, I also think that something we've lost a memory of is, is how much... Uh, how much tension there was between Catholics and Protestants, right, in this country, between different kinds of Christians, in a way that is absolutely unimaginable now. And, I mean, are you saying that that really started to break down with Vatican II, that that was a turning point in that change? I think you can date it rather precisely. The post-war years, as Catholicism was growing, and again, the GI Bill bringing them into the mainstream, uh, really threw uh, Protestant leadership off balance, and in those days, the most modernist liberal and the most fundamentalist conservative could coalesce. A group formed in the 1940s called POAU, Protestants and Other Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Uh, theoretically, they were watchdogs for everything, but in those days, um, they just focused on Catholicism, fear that Catholic schools would get tax funds, mm-hmm. that Catholic children could ride public school buses, etc., motivated them a great deal. Today, significantly, and they're always in the news now, they're simply called Americans United. The Protestant name is off because a lot of non-Protestants <laughs> enter this uh, civil libertarian cause. But yes, and uh, 
I think I can recall you wanted me to talk about my childhood yeah. and all through college and seminary. Uh, I went to a seminary in St. Louis, and on October 31st, you could fill Keele Auditorium with twenty or 30,000 Protestants, and they would uh, be there mainly to uh, attack Catholicism, to show how we'd gotten liberated. Mm. Ten and 15 years later, you're having joint ecumenical services. That's how suddenly right. that change came about. Uh, I think certain continuities. There, that is, there was a lot of Catholicism in Protestantism, and they didn't know it, and there was a lot of Protestantism in Catholicism, and it didn't know it, and so they sort of met each other in the aisle. But culturally, as your part of this conversation is implying, it is uh, quite a thing when you've had the uh, the throne and the altar <laughs> to yourself, and you're suddenly displaced. <laughs> and I mean, personally, for you, was that shift? Uh Surprising, moving. How did, how did you experience that tension dis- dissipating? Most of my life wasn't involved with that. I became a, a Lutheran minister, and uh, we were so busy saving souls and feeding souls and uh, giving the bread and wine and baptizing and preaching that we didn't do uh, as individuals and as pastors a great deal on that line. However, I in 1956 was invited to join the staff of the Christian Century, which was the towering uh, Protestant voice. Today it still is, if not towering, a strong voice, but it's ecumenical. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of Catholic writers. It has a lot of evangelical writers uh, and all sorts. But at that time, it was uh, Protestant and it was anti-Catholic. One of its editors in the 40s wrote a book, Can Catholicism Win America? And the thesis of it was as soon as they got 51%, they've got it. Uh, A year later, uh, another editor wrote a book called Can Protestantism Win America, in which he says Catholics gain so fast it's all over with. Um, In 1950, on the cover of the Christian Century, there was an article, Pluralism, a National Menace. (laughs) And pluralism was their worry about Catholicism. When I joined the staff five years later, Will Herberg, a great Jewish sociologist, had written a book called Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. And uh, by then, pluralism was the best game in town. Um, I sort of grew up on uh, my first visits to campus. You always had one priest, one minister, one rabbi. That was called pluralism back then. Um, But through that all, the Protestant still was in a privileged position. Now, I I may misportray this. This wasn't all arrogance. This wasn't all... Um, people out to do others in. It simply was a kind of a reflex, a kind of a taken-for-granted sense. Uh, We've been here longest. We're uh, the largest. We're the ones who left our stamp on America's literature, its poetry, its statecraft, etc. And that's why when you suddenly uh, see change in Catholicism and Judaism became much more visible, and pretty soon black Protestantism came to be as separately identified as... Protestantism as such, you have a very different uh, situation. Now, I'm going to say something mm-hmm. in case I'm sounding uh, critical. <laughs> uh, you can sound critical something... if you'd like to. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to be critical, but I, <laughs> I don't want to be distorting what I want yeah, to be yeah. uncritical about. And that is to say that um, for all of that reflexive sense of establishment, um, I, I think I'm being a neutral, value-free historian when I say I don't know any time in human history that somebody... That powerful yielded that gracefully. I wrote three volumes on 20th century America, and I was looking for dead bodies. Mm. Um, This morning's paper, any morning's paper, you'll have several hundred people die in the world, in Africa, in the Middle East, uh, in anywhere. And 
over interreligious tensions and so on, mm-hmm. I found one or two in the century. In the previous century, uh, it would have been uh, religion, Protestantism was often used, white Protestantism, to uh, enslave, and it was used to justify the reservating of the Indians. Plenty of dead bodies. But mm-hmm. in the 20th century, when it sort of caught on to this, it sort of said, uh, uh, all right, you're making your case. Uh, we'll make room for you. And they weren't doing that much before the mid-50s, but from then on in, they have done it even at expense to their own identity. Right, Pro- Protestantism as a, as a as a social force. As a that's right. Right now, um, you you do uh, write about Will Herberg's book. Uh, sorry, Jew. What was it? Jew. Protestant Catholic. Protestant Jew. Catholic Jew. As a oh yes, as a in 1955, uh, he was a Jewish sociologist and theologian. Um, and you you describe that book as sort of a turning point in your mind. It's not a book that m- most of us have heard of. I mean, tell me what was so important about that book. First of all, I am somebody who believes that very often a book symbolizes a turning point. Uh, Rachel Carson's books on the cruel sea um, really m- made new people aware of of uh, ecology, environment. Betty Friedan's The uh, Feminine Mystique. Suddenly people are aware of feminism. And I think that Will Herberg's book, yes, it was not a bestseller, but all the people that were in the positions that study these things and monitor them suddenly had a new new voice. And Will Herberg's thesis, he took it from a study of Norwegian immigrants, a historian of or immigration, mainly Lutheran Norwegians, said what the son wants to forget, the grandson wants to remember. The immigrant children who were coming in great numbers in that period were embarrassed that their parents talked a foreign language, that they ate funny foods, that they danced funny dances, and they all wanted to be Americanized. Uh, Jews named their children Shirley and <laughs> Raymond and so on. Um, and then the grandson came along and the granddaughter and suddenly they have Sarah back and Abraham back and so on. Um, <laughs> Herbert took that as saying Americans, um, they all love being American, but they don't know what that is. So you are a Jewish American or a Catholic American or Protestant American. You can't go back and retrieve the language of the old country, but you can easily uh, readopt the religion. And that was a big part behind a kind of a boom of religion in the Eisenhower era that was then shattered by the... Uh, upheavals of the 60s. Hmm. And I'm sure you've read these statistics that are now coming out that that perhaps today or tomorrow or six months from now, um, there will no longer be a Protestant majority in this country, and it depends on how people measure these things. But uh, still, it, it seems significant. Um, and, and what is replacing the number of people who say that they're Protestant are more people who say that they have no religion at all. In fact, it's very high... Um, among people who were born in 1980 or later. Um, and then there are, there's a, a category that's doubled of people who call themselves just Christian, right, who don't identify with a mm-hmm. specific tradition. I mean, I wonder if you think that um, that these changes and the um, the decline in Protestantism as a sort of controlling force in some way in culture... Um, if that necessarily had to translate into people seeming to drift away from religion altogether or from religious tradition altogether, how do you explain these statistics? First of all, I think that uh, Protestantism and Catholicism have very common fates here. Mm-hmm. They both have had trouble uh, holding their younger generation. Um, Judaism, a very small percent, are observant on any day but the high holidays. Uh, in some respects, 
the Protestants, Catholics, and Jews of the northern part of the United States share a lot with Canada, which is far less involved with church, or Western Europe, which is far, far less involved. Um, incidentally, that little section, I call it the spiritual ice belt, <laughs> Western Europe, the British Isles, Canada, and the northern U.S., <laughs> yeah. uh, we are really exceptions in the world, and we are really having a hard time catching up with understanding the rest of the world. Um, Protestantism is not in trouble around the world. Um, I am a Lutheran, and uh, we've had 300 years to get about 8 million people. In 15 years from now, the African Lutheran churches will have added as many people as it took us 300 years to get. Hmm. Uh, and that's true of many other Protestantisms and Pentecostalisms. Right. Um, every every day there are 23,000 new Christians in sub-Saharan Africa, and half of them would be called Protestant, uh, if often in the Pentecostal version. So around the world, it's not a losing force. It's uh, no longer, however, does it make the reference it once did to Western Europe and its daughter, uh, the United States. Uh, what will that mean for the United States? I don't think we're going to wake up someday and see total change. There's a strange thing that um, hundreds of years after the vital life of a religion is passed, there's still a strong influence. We're still living off some of the Greek uh, religious influences. Mm -hmm. We're living off a lot of medieval Catholicism. Our very universities are inventions of that. Our hospitals are inventions of that. So in a sense, uh, meanings, ideas, in this case, ideas of liberty, freedom, that came very often from Protestants, uh, will live on even if uh, not everybody goes to church. Uh, still, the churches have been the places where these stories get renewed regularly. And if you drift so far, you don't get those meanings. I've seen a clip of a film in which Jay Leno went outside his theater one night and asked different people some Bible questions. And he asked two young women, um, who was the character that a big fish swallowed up? And they said, Pinocchio. I don't think they would ever have heard of Jonah and the whale. Uh, so you can get that far away from the stories. Um, as far as the people are concerned who say they're Christian but they're not of a particular group, probably the majority of those still would be typed as Protestant when mm -hmm. they think about it. Mm -hmm. Because if you're if you're born and bred Catholic, or even if your grandparents were, you know it. unless you make a change, you know you're Catholic <laughs> and Jew and yeah. Mormon yeah. Uh, and so on. Whereas with Protestantism, it's so blended into the environment that you don't have to identify yourself that way. You're just Christian in general. Okay. I mean, I just wonder personally... Um, when you look at this statistic, is is this something that troubles you? I don't think I wake up in the morning having great worries about that. Um, you can tell from what I've said, I have a global view of yeah. humanity and of religion, and it moves around a lot. Uh, in the 1930s, the great Catholic uh, Hilary Belloc said, Europe is the faith and the faith is Europe. Well, that was true then. Now the cathedrals are empty, but their granddaughters are are full in Latin America, Asia, right. uh, and Africa. Um, I certainly think that uh, some things borne by the Protestant message would be uh, a great loss. I think one of its gift to gifts to America was uh, its sense that we're scripted. It's a scriptural faith. Uh, we used to kid. I taught at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And um, half the students would be Catholic and, and everything else. And uh, somebody would come up and say, oh, that's in Judges 7.14. Somebody said, that, that's a Baptist in here. We Catholics <laughs> don't have to study all that. Well, I think that's a big thing that Protestantism has brought. And the version now called evangelicalism keeps that up. I think the sense of the grace of God, uh, which can be cheapened very much, 
but um, it's a it's a Christ-centered faith that is not exclusivistic as some of the evangelicals and all of the fundamentalists are. That is, um, you uh, walk in the way of Christ, you find that Christ is the one who saves you or whatever verb you want to use for that, but it doesn't mean that uh, all virtue and all, all morality goes with you. Well, most religions in the world aren't that way today, mm-hmm. and a lot of former Protestants who've turned hardline in America aren't that way today. Um, I think it'd be a great loss if that disappears. So there are just numbers of these things about freedom, about interpreting the culture, uh, about pointing to what national life is like. It was there. And I think one more thing. Mm-hmm. The great theologian Paul Tillich in the 1950s uh, discussing Christianity said it needs both what he called Catholic substance and the Protestant prophetic principle. Mm-hmm. Catholic substance means you build cathedrals, you create music. You don't have to be Roman Catholic to have it, but right. it's there. Um, you uh, affirm the earth, you love the taste of food, you do all those things. And the Protestant principle says while you're doing that, you're supposed to be subject to the uh, call of God. Uh, to the call of the poor, the call of the neighbor, or whatever. And the Protestant principle has to be exercised, first of all, on Protestantism itself. You don't go uh, saying how bad Islam is uh, without first checking out to see whether you're killers, too. Mm. And I think that's been a nice, irritating voice in classic Protestantism, which is not as clear in today's evangelical Protestantism, which tends to be much more uh, my country... uh, not right or wrong, but my country is always right. Um, <laughs> well, it, the old Protestant, yeah. the old Protestant principle, uh, uh, you you really uh, had to follow that no matter how far along you'd come, God was holding you to a higher standard. Hmm. And, and let's talk about evangelical Christianity, which um, uh, which at the same time that there are these some statistics of people becoming less religious, there's certainly a sense that religion. In, in some ways, it's more of a force now. I mean, I, I think there would be people who would take your phrase uh, when Protestants ran the show and, and say that, that that a certain kind of Christianity is becoming a, almost a controlling force. Or You know, we have an evangelical Christian mm-hmm. in the White House. I mean, how are you observing what's happening now with your broad view of things and of history? Okay. Well, everyone who is evangelical is Protestant, but the kind of Protestant we're talking about here has tended to be more those who inherited the European and colonial establishment um, and so on. And so we haven't concentrated on evangelicals. When you add up evangelical and the other Protestants we're talking about is how you get half the American people on the rolls. Now, yes, uh, you asked before about big changes in American religion. And in one sentence I said uh, the old-style Protestants sort of looked condescendingly on Billy Graham and didn't know what sense to make of him. And at their worst, they were even snobbish and dismissive. The the backcountry people, they were redneck, they were uh, hillbillies, they were holy rollers. Well, all of a sudden they are in the White House and the Senate and the networks and uh, the entertainment world and the athletic world. Um, I don't think you'd have a big quorum of white Protestants in the NFL um, uh, front lines. Uh, you, you'll have uh, African-American Pentecostals and so on. Uh, there's been a surge. Okay, what happened? Um, I mean, I thought say, I think it's really interesting that you actually date, you in something that, are, that you wrote, I noticed you, you saw the rise of evangelicals as a more public force already in 1964 in the Goldwater campaign. I mean, for you, this doesn't seem to be as new as it seems for many observers. I think those of us who, who write this kind of history are a little puzzled by the naivete of the uh, 
well, people in, in journalism, in the media, mm-hmm. in the general public, who think all this just got invented in the last four years and a couple months, um, it has very deep roots. Um, I trace it not to the 20s. Nobody cared about the religion of Harding, Coolidge, Hoover. And uh, Roosevelt was a mainline Protestant, who Episcopalian, and he could draw upon these themes very much. Harry Truman was a salty Baptist. Truman and Carter and Clinton, the three Baptist presidents of the century, uh, know the Bible best. They could just recite reams of it mm-hmm. uh, at any moment. Um, but nobody paid attention to that in Harry Truman. Uh, he had Billy Graham to the White House and was embarrassed by him, didn't want him back. Um, but uh, Eisenhower started having Billy Graham come by, uh, who's really seen as the most benign figure in the leadership of the new evangelicalism. Uh, when we say evangelical today, it's almost a long shadow originally of Graham. Today, evangelicalism right. is, is it, it's, 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 but it's multi-headed. Yes. It's all over the place. Yes. You, you, you can't really generalize about it much anymore. But in its pure form, it came up in that way. Mm-hmm. And yes, um, in 1960, the battle was over Kennedy's uh, Catholicism, and nobody paid attention to anybody else. But in 64, uh, they really galvanized around Barry Goldwater uh, and a kind of a conservatism. And uh, they didn't get very far because he didn't get very far, but they got angry about being dismissed and so on. In 1976, when Jimmy Carter ran, he's the first one who would say, I'm born again, mm-hmm. first one to say I had a personal experience of Jesus, but they soon dropped him because they didn't like him politically. Uh, Ronald Reagan was not born again, but he was friendly to them. But you can see this long, long trend coming. Uh, Robert Handy, one of our major historians, once wrote a little book on the American Religious Depression, 1925 to 1935, because the mainline churches were already beginning to lose some of their uh, membership, their status. They were depressed. But Joel Carpenter, another historian, has since pointed out, uh, through it all, the fundamentalists who'd been disgraced in the 1920s started organizing. They bought radio stations. They started Bible colleges. They had magazines. And they were building a world inside the world. And suddenly, along come people like Billy Graham and presidents who favor it, and you have a very different kind of pattern. So that by the time, I would say by the time of Ronald Reagan, it became so vivid that the normal clergy in the White House would be evangelists, usually until recently of a rather moderate sort. Uh, They could feel pretty much at home in Protestant churches, more conservative, but um, Jesus is the center of it, uh, the impulse to convert is at the center of it, and uh, I don't think anyone should take away from their achievement of uh, coming up out of being backcountry to being so prominent and influential today. Mm -hmm. Uh, How they use that influence will probably disturb a lot of people, including myself, uh, not not they meaning all evangelicals, but some of the politicized evangelicals, uh, I think now, who started what I call a politics of resentment, mm-hmm. they organized because they were being demeaned. Uh, as soon as they got power, they started a politics of the will to power and would like to run everything now. And um, we can see from the history of Catholicism and mainline Protestantism, that's a very dangerous thing to do. Power corrupts, and we'll see a good deal more of that. It also seems to me, though, that a, a mistake is made in in media in lumping together, as you said, evangelicalism is a is a is a there's a multiplicity of evangelicalism, and 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 evangelicalism has a very different history and theology in some cases from Pentecostals and certainly from fundamentalists, although there is there is some overlap. I mean, how do you mm-hmm. how would you um, explain? 
the distinctions to someone who, yeah. All right. Um, to the sociologists, the, the one-fourth, slightly more than one-fourth of America that would be called evangelical includes fundamentalists, evangelicals, Pentecostals, Southern Baptists, and conservative Protestant denominations. And they really have tremendous differences, except when they converge on highly focal and, let's say, useful political points, anti-gay marriage or something of that sort. But for the most part, they're much more diverse. When I was a little boy, my Nebraska uncles thought that the Tennessee Valley Authority was a communist plot. <laughs> um, well, it was it was put in by Southern Baptists and Church of Christ and fundamentalists. They voted their pocketbooks. They didn't have the uh, organization they do now. So again, on that spectrum, I would say um, until around the turn of the last century, you just had you had all Protestants were called evangelicals. All evangelicals were called Protestants. Right. During the century, though, you started having the liberal churches accenting more uh, the biblical story applied to social life, economic life, cultural life, whereas those who were evangelical started uh, dealing with private life, personal life. That still goes down in our well, own time. Why, where did, how did, why did that happen? How did that happen? Well, I think the... Protestants who ran the show uh, had the sense that you can pass a law, um, you can get rid of slavery, you can uh, um, join secular people to get antitrust laws, you can work at the eight-hour day, you could have child labor laws. You always did that in kinship, by the way, with Catholics and often Jews. And uh, and the secular, and they they would move that, and they sort of bled into it, and didn't stand out the same way. All the while, then, the uh, revivalists, um, Billy Graham's ancestors, uh, the greatest being Dwight Moody, uh, Chicago evangelist, who looked out at the world and saw it in trouble, and he said, "The world is a a flood," and God gave me a lifeboat and said, "Moody, rescue all you can," <laughs> and I think they concentrated on heaven on saving souls, and then on on moral issues, they chose those over which an individual could have control. You shouldn't, you shouldn't duel. That was a big thing in the 19th century. Stop mm. dueling. Um, you shouldn't gamble. You shouldn't swear. You shouldn't drink. Uh, you had that kind of thing. Now, what's so interesting today is what have come to be called social issues in recent campaigns are not social. They're personal Enlarged, in other words, the evangelicals and the fundamentalists and the Catholic conservatives concentrate on what goes on in the bedroom, right. and uh, they don't talk much mm-hmm. the way classic Protestants did about about should the government be involved with poverty, with waging peace, uh, all of those kinds of things. Uh, so there, there's a kind of a schism developed, and since most of us have more sense that if things go wrong in our personal life. Uh, gay marriage uh, would be a problem then. Um, all the issues of that sort, you kind of hold the fort on them, and it's been their genius to organize that in our own time, uh, so they have great political power, and uh, the Republican Party in particular has seen that that can be amassed and uh, help get votes for things outside of the bedroom. Yeah, although but, there, uh, are, there certainly are Catholics and uh, and even evangelicals who are mobilized around poverty and and those more classic kinds of social justice issues. Oh, my, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, with Catholics, um, 1894, the uh, Pope Leo XIII uh, issued a document, Rerum Novarum, 
which is almost a program you could use for social justice today, right down the line. Mm-hmm. And when Catholic bishops and priests and lay leaders are serious, they go back to that, and you have a real charter. It it neither wholly affirmed or wholly criticized capitalism and free enterprise, and it didn't uh, totally condemn government involvement in social life. And that's, uh, in 1919, the bishops reaffirmed that kind of thing. So, oh no, Catholics are very much up front. And some of the strongest, strongest uh, social involvements of today are among evangelical Protestants. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's tremendous power. They're very biblically based. And when they read the prophets, uh, uh, Isaiah 58, God says, uh, okay, I asked you to do some fasting. And you, boy, you fast. You fast so much, you get hungry and you get crabby, you beat each other up. Uh, That's not the fast I want. I want the fast that looks at the widow and the orphan and the falsely imprisoned and your own relatives who need help. Um, And when you say the Bible says that, uh, there's tremendous uh, conscience pricking there. But that kind of Catholic and that kind of evangelical and that kind of Protestant are themselves in a kind of a loose coalition today, um, not as powerful as the uh, personal morality people, right. but uh, there, there's a lot of power there. A lot of witness goes on. I, I want to talk about the fundamentalism project that you did, but um, I mean, before we actually talk about fundamentalism, I, I, I'd like to note something that that I, I thought was very interesting. I was reading your address that you gave at the conclusion of that project to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and, and um, you titled it, Too Bad We're So Relevant, The Fundamentalism Project Projected. But one one of the things that you noted that you found, that the, that the project found, I'll, I'll just read this quote. Um, the mm-hmm. fundamentalism project scholars have found that fundamentalists tend to turn intimate and private issues into public affairs. Concern for the zones of life closest to the self, worldview, identity, sexuality, gender differentiation, family, education, communication, tend to take priority over macroeconomic concerns. Now, we have just finished an election, a presidential election, in which a vast number of people said, uh, and I think these were people all along the spectrum, from moderate uh, to more conservative, um, that moral issues were of, of primary importance to them. So, so, and those people were not all fundamentalist, right? I mean, people who vote, I mean, there is no, you can't equate uh, this Republican majority right now with fundamentalism. So my question to you is, but though though there is this focus on intimate and private issues um, in 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 many people's definition of of morality and moral values, and so my question to you is 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 there some something at the origins of fundamentalism that is also moving our culture as a whole right now? Okay, one quick word about fundamentalism: the fundamentalism we studied, to which you're referring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not your friendly neighborhood fundamentalist down the block. It was the mili- we are, our assignment was to study the militancies. Right. Uh, when we started this, uh, historian friend said, uh, when you're studying American fundamentalism, Marty, remember there are no machine guns in the basement of the Moody Bible Institute in yeah. Chicago. Yeah. Um, they, they, you know they've been a, a peaceful group. So we were really studying a different kind of thing there, and yet there are certain things everybody had in common. In the roots of fundamentalism in in our culture. Um, it started, of course, uh, anti-evolution, anti-biblical criticism, and then it started taking a moral cast. But its moral cast, again, was uh, the things that you should take control of. But you could do that one way in a small town. 
You did it differently when you looked at the city. First of all, all those immigrants coming and they drank beer on Sundays and so on. Well, we have to have a we have to have Sunday closing laws for them. One thing after another, that sort were imposed. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, and when the fundamentalists learned they couldn't keep them, prohibition repeal and so on, I think a lot of them turned kind of sullen and angry and uh, looked for a new round. Now they're very selective today. Uh, I think uh, many conservative evangelicals who are in a state where the economy uh, in no small measure is based on uh, casino gambling and so on, um, you don't hear them criticizing it very much. A lot of Protestant liberals criticize gambling more than than these evangelicals do. Uh, They've kind of switched roles here along the way. But in general, um, virtue and vice were their big terms, not social justice and social change. And take what was a virtuous person, pass laws to promote that virtue. And I certainly am leaving a wrong impression if I'm suggesting that bedroom and clinical issues don't have social consequences. Mm -hmm. They have huge social consequences. If um, divorce becomes more easy and grows and families uh, disintegrate and children don't have uh, models in the parental world and they're not educable, um, it's a huge difference in the culture. So they don't have a monopoly on it, uh, either in its invention or its present carrying out, but I think more of them restrict their energies to that. And again, it's a very p- politically popular thing to do. But but here's my question. that This description that you gave of fundamentalism and uh, uh, that people turn to intimate and private issues and that these take priority over macroeconomic concerns could actually, I think, describe maybe a majority of Americans this year um, and even n- not just people on the Republican side. Um, and so what I'm wondering is if there's something that you see that gives rise to that tendency in, within fundamentalism that, that is actually a, alive in our culture as a whole right now. I think two things are going on. Okay. On one level, around the world, people are having trouble with their identity, uh, with their belief, uh, with whom do I hang out, whom do I trust, who trusts me. And so a phrase we used in the Fundamentalism Project, around the world there is a massive, convulsive ingathering of peoples into their separatenesses and over-againstnesses to protect their pride and power and place from others who are doing the same thing. Now look at American life. We don't do it the way they do it in Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan. We don't veil women or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But we're clustering more tightly. We're the virtuous and they're the vicious. We're the good, they're the evil. Uh, You go down the list and um, we have our empire and they have their evil empire. Well, there's no doubt about the evil that went on in in Iraq and back in the old Soviet Union. But um, assigning to yourself the role of being God's agent uh, to produce liberty around the world was a very different kind of pattern. But the fall of the Iron Curtain, the fall of the Berlin Wall... Uh, sort of left a big vacuum, and people are struggling and looking, and I think that's why you have this kind of Mm -hmm. hyper-nationalism. I think you could speak any blasphemy against Jesus Christ and suffer less than if you'd refuse to sing God Bless America at a rally. Uh, The the current doctrinal test in America is how much do you identify God with the country, which is a very un-Protestant thing to do, but it it happens a lot. So that's that's the one kind of thing. The Mm -hmm. other is... um, I hope I'm showing throughout. I have many kinds of sympathies. 
I won't say for hardline fundamentalism, but for mainline evangelicalism, mm-hmm. uh, they do wonderful things. And if if they don't always rely on government to do things, some of the programs, uh, World Vision, I don't know, I shouldn't give free, free commercials to everybody, but they're on the front line. They mm-hmm. really are serving Africans and serving Iraqis and so on. Yeah. So I, I, I praise that and identify with it, and I support some of the causes. I'm sometimes even seen as kind of a crossover person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I belong to both camps, as it were. I'm, I'm not going to knock that anywhere. Um, but I think that uh, what has happened, uh, I'm involved in many projects on the support of the family. I was on a project uh, to try to decrease the numbers of um, children born of un- unwed mothers, teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um a family project at Emory University. I'm now co-directing one on the child. Um, why are moderates and liberals doing this? They, too, have seen the, uh, the terrible disarray that comes from extreme erosion of these fronts. And I think, just as in a civil rights movement, um, we were happy. <laughs> we, African-American Protestants, were happy that uh, priest, minister, rabbi, and all the lay people were out there uh, I've sat in the back of a bus where we started comparing notes, and there were some people there who were agnostic and so on. And who cared? We were just happy they were putting their body on the line. Right. So today, I think whoever is trying to <clears throat> bring some pattern of uh, positive family living, uh, honesty in personal relations, um, more power to them. But carry that over into the larger realm, too. You can be honest in your little uh, drugstore at the corner, but you also have to be honest then in the big corporations, uh, which uh, were often exempt from this kind of uh, evangelical scrutiny. I think now some of the evangelicals are scrutinizing them very well. I guess I still, I'm, I'm still wondering how you understand the, the human and, and spiritual, and maybe not theological, but the spiritual roots of this focus that seems to have become so definitive in our public life of, on private issues of morality as the issues of morality? I think that all through Christian history, anything related to sexuality was uh, troubling and exciting. Uh, Clerical celibacy for 1,700 years in Catholicism shows this. How much of an upheaval was caused when Martin Luther got married and when the Protestant clergy married? Uh, every change in sexual mores is troubling because that's so close to the roots of creation and transmission of life. Now, what's happened in our own time, I argue, every church body from the Mennonites to the Protestants to the Evangelicals to the Roman Catholic Church are torn up over two words, sex and authority. By sex, I mean everything in the biological cycle from in vitro fertilization mm-hmm. or stem cell research, uh, abortion, birth control, uh, neonatal care, uh, cohabitation outside of marriage, all these things uh, are troubling all the churches. Uh, and some dividing people it. in them. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people sweep these things under the rug or close their eyes to it or whatever. But um, I always say that the laws on uh, gay ri- gay yeah, the laws on gay rights and the practices toward them will be changed when every tenth evangelical minister's daughter comes out. That is, when it gets close to you, you you see these differently. I'm not saying all the change would be good, but it's interesting to see how you roll with the punch when you recognize it. 
Well, it's been these mainline Protestant churches and Catholic churches that have been ministering to the arts crowd, to the downtown crowd, uh, and uh, there you wouldn't have their church services if you weren't friendly to people in various walks of life. Mm-hmm. I think evangelicalism has been better at building borders around its churches and itself. Clear boundary. You're in or you're out. And um, you're out if you're, <laughs> if you're out. <laughs> okay. Um, and that's kept And that. I think that, mm-hmm. that's a part of it. I, I think it's very hard to get to the root of your part of the question as to why this long-time concern for personal morality, sexual morality, suddenly became so politically powerful. Mm-hmm. On one level, let's be honest, it's very exploitable. Uh, everything else I've talked about caring for peace, caring for justice, caring for feeding. These are all relative things. How much foreign aid budget you're going to put into it? How much energy you're going to put into it? With abortion, you either have an abortion or you don't. You either perform uh, gay right marriage or not. So it can be a big matter of identity and boundary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's very popular in a time when people lose their identity and their boundary. Mm-hmm. I belong to a church, they will say, that is against uh, gay expression uh, you're in or you're out. If you're in the mainline Protestant churches, and frankly, a lot of Catholicism, um, it's much less defined. You're, you may be, you may not be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that sharp definition is a strong interest. Remember, in, in evangelicalism, there's much more sense of uh, the early Protestant witness that uh, it's God versus Satan, Christ versus Antichrist, uh, etc., and you know exactly who you are and where you are. And uh, I think that's a very powerful thing when it's linked to issues like uh, the sexual ones. So so liberal, uh, let's say Democrats and even Demo- religious Democrat, yeah, liberal Dem- uh, religious people who are who are also have been struggling to find a voice in this in this last period will often harken back to the days when it was the social justice issues that mobilized people and that had political force. And, you know, I wonder, we talked about the 60s a minute ago. I mean, did issues like poverty, I can see how issues, civil rights somehow became personal to many people that, and, and it had faces and, and stories and lives. It was embodied. Did, did those issues somehow um, achieve that force in the 60s because they came, became more personal for people? And, I mean, could you imagine that happening again? Oh, I think so. Um, the personalization of civil rights, you suddenly had a face, Martin Luther King's. Mm. You suddenly had causes, the four little Birmingham girls who were bombed. Now, these are very, very vivid things so that the President of the United States had to get on television one night and uh, after you've seen the pictures of the dogs attacking children in in police attempts to put down blacks in the South, suddenly it did become personal. But... <laughs> Not not in my neighborhood, not in my backyard. That is, uh, Martin Luther King soon learned it was easier to have demonstrations in Birmingham and Selma than it was in Cicero and Chicago. Okay. Um, I think that the, here there was a lot of, uh, we aren't going to take, we aren't going to let you reach us personally quite the same way. I should also say, in, in fairness, I'm really trying to be as accurate as I can, um, these involvements of uh, white Protestants in peace movements and civil rights movements, that was never massive. Uh, that was often leadership. Some people would call them generals without armies, and uh, they often failed to it. And we have studies, uh, one book by Jeffrey Haddon called The Gathering Storm in the Churches, in which you found that the clergy were 
really far ahead or out of step with a lot of their lay leadership. So it was not that Protestantism ever was all that gung ho about social justice okay. issues. Uh, they uh, and there's where I think uh, we we historians have kept saying a lot of evangelicals um, were up close. They were getting their hands dirty. Uh, the Salvation Army, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm. is an evangelical movement, uh, one of the oldest. Yeah. And uh, uh, you could sit at, at, at a seminary like I did and have academic tenure and write books about this, and it's pretty safe. And then you go down into the inner city where many of them were, and uh, they would shame everybody else. So we don't have any absolute lines here at all. Okay. Um, I, I, just, I just think that the sudden choice to organize on the virtue vice line uh, the we're entirely right and they're entirely wrong line. It was very exploitable in politics and in many, many states that uh, has come to prevail as the main political agency. Nobody would have dreamed of that 20 years ago. Right. I'd like to talk about the Fundamentalism Project, which you um, co-directed, began in 1987, <laughs> and certainly uh, in a new way, just in the last, in the early 21st century, is a word that resonates and that has entered everyone's vocabulary. I, and I'd, I'd like to know, as you were studying this in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, what did you learn that surprised you as you got into this project then? The first thing we learned was that it is religious. That is, uh, we didn't let the psychologists in the first couple of years. This was a six-year study. And we didn't want people to say fundamentalism is nothing but uh, early toilet training or nothing but fighting your dad or nothing but having a hang-up. Uh, we wanted to be sure that we caught the religious dimension and were convinced of that. And therefore, fundamentalists, by and large, saw us as as being fair. Mm. Our main instrument was the tape recorder. We set out a couple of hundred scholars around the world, and they would ask, why are you this, and why do you raise your family that way? We studied it in 23 religions, by the way, Jains mm-hmm. and Sikhs and everybody. It wasn't just uh, Christians and Muslims and Jews. Um, what else did we learn? Number one, um, fundamentalism is not the old-time religion. Uh, fundamentalism is a very modern packaging. That is, it's born when there's an assault on values that you have and are uncertain about. There has to be a threat to you as a group identity or to you as an individual. So the most important word in fundamentalism is you react. Very few fundamentalists are uh, concerned about things that traditionalists and regular conservatives and orthodox are. You can't get a phone booth full of an argument on the most important Christian doctrines like the Divine Trinity (laughs) and the two natures of Christ and the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. Nobody cares. Uh, They care about uh, evolution. They care about uh, being left behind as the world ends. Um, But it's a very selective agenda. The whole left-behind theology is not the old-time religion. It was invented in the 1840s, which is really the modern world. Hmm. Uh, uh, For someone like you. For well, someone with yes, your that's right. <laughs> that's right. I, yeah. I move. I move glacially, not yeah. with a hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, from from thirty till eighteen forty is a long time. Uh, certainly, there were often apocalyptic movements. Certainly, everybody believed the world would end abruptly, and so on. But the whole reckoning of uh, the plot, for example, that Israel would be restored uh, as a sign of the end time. This is all uh, a very modern theme, and many other features were. Were, uh, were modern. Another sample of that fact that we found out modern fundamentalists were 
everywhere we studied them, they were better at the use of mass media than modernists were. Huh. Now, that's uh, interesting. Yes. Uh, well, so they're not uh, Luddites, fundamentalists. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I once spoke in a church in, I think it was Dallas. Not I didn't preach. They don't have me preach, but we're friendly. So they, they had me speak between services. And the pulpit looked like a uh, 747 panel. Hmm. Uh, red light would go on, and baby's crying in nursery 23C. And another blue light, and that means the Jaguar's lights were left on in parking lot D, and I could raise the temperature and the volume and everything else. And um, and the minister in his sermon later on um, um, blasted technology, which he was using. <laughs> in other words, he blasted the energy put into it, I suppose you'd say. Well, I can go to a to a liberal uh, Methodist church, and uh, I'm pretty sure the microphone won't work. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But the Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, revolution was done through tape recordings from France. Hmm. Um, uh, Al-Qaeda is uh, very much at home with the Internet. Very savvy, yeah. And so on. So I think that was another thing. We also noticed, curiously, that in almost every fundamentalism, more women than men were members, even if it uh, cut at what most... uh, uh, women are believed to be fighting for. Right, you noted uh, that. that. Is, That's very yeah, surprising. They, yeah, they accent women's submission. Um, there, there are several places in the New Testament where women are to submit. Nobody made a big deal of that. And a couple of years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, uh, wanted to make, teach everybody the doctrine of female submission. Why? Well, cultural change has come. Southern Baptist women today are college-educated. They're smart. They are executives. They're outside the home. And... Uh, and that can be troubling because it can also be hard on marriages, and so you have to compensate. If the if the wife is smarter and wealthier and all that than the husband, you better have a theology for her to know her place. Hmm. Uh, I'm being a little crude here. I, it's, yeah. it's, it's condensing. And you but found I mean, that across had, cultures, that, that phenomenon. Um, well, in, in the Islamic world, we had an interesting thing. One of our philosophers, Ernest Gellner, said um, the women in Iran— the young women in Iran were wearing the shador, the veil, not because their mother did, but because their mother didn't. Grandma did. Mother wanted to be modern. She didn't get the benefits of modernity hmm. uh, along the way, and therefore she goes back to a version of the old-time religion and submits to the ayatollahs. Now, in America, we don't have ayatollahs. I don't want to make that quite that same kind of thing. But you have to pass resolutions that very smart and attractive and high-achieving women should be submissive. Uh, yes, there's a Bible verse about that, and yes, uh, marital compatibility is very important. But you always, you I always say you, if you're fundamentalist, you do jujitsu with modernity. Hmm. A small woman can thwart an attack by a big man if he comes at her fast, and uh, because she uses the momentum, of what's coming? Mass media help produce fundamentalism. Because uh, first stage was born in the early radio, the second stage, Billy mm. Graham, early television, right. the third stage now with the Internet. Uh, what do you do? It comes at you with full force. You might try laws against obscenity and pornography. You might try to boycott Disney World. That doesn't do much. You're better off starting your own uh, television networks. Mm. When, uh, we don't have cable at our house, but when I'm in a hotel somewhere, uh, especially in the South, uh, there are 50 stations. Eight or ten of them will be Pentecostal, uh, fundamentalist, or conservative evangelical. Right. Um, so uh, what are they doing? Uh, mass media are what messed up the intimacy of my family life. I'll turn it right back upon itself. Hmm. So in, effe- in effect, they 
create a whole world uh, inside the larger world. The mega churches sometimes now have uh, bowling alleys, swimming pools, place where you can get your car yeah. greased. McDonald's is indoors and everything. A complete uh, life that kind of keeps you sheltered from everybody else, and yet you're very modern people. You're okay. doing exactly what secular people are doing, but you're doing it with uh, congenial fellow Christians. Hmm. And all right, so at, at at latest on September 11th, 2001, the word fundamentalism became a part of our public vocabulary. And I'm curious, as you watched that happen and have watched all the discussion since then, having having spent this good block of time studying fundamentalism a decade earlier. Um, what what have you found to be missing in our, our analysis of fundamentalism recently? I think, unfortunately, the word is used to clump everybody together. Uh, one of the things we stressed was, for example, since usually it's in headlines about Islam, that the vast, vast majority of Muslims were not this kind of fundamentalist. Um, we would remind people, for example, the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s had 450,000 members in Indiana in the north and every meeting had a Protestant minister it had the cross it had the open Bible it had prayer and the rest of Protestantism and the rest of Christianity would say that's not a bit representative of of the one billion of us out there so I think when Al-Qaeda came on the scene and others of that sort we said uh, we're better off noticing their varieties Um, since the Iraq war started of course there, there are fewer varieties. They galvanize, they organize, and they get a lot more fundamentalist members. Hmm. But, uh, but in general, uh, that was our first message: show the diversities, make it easier for moderates to be moderate. Uh, don't do things that will drive them into another kind of camp. Um, I think the overuse of the word fundamentalism. I should be claiming a patent on it because we did those five big fat books on All it. Right. <laughs> but, but one of the themes of those five books was. There are an awful lot of things out there, and there's a lot of internal diversity. Just as you and I were stressing the internal diversity in evangelicalism, which has mega churches, it has uh, tiny little Baptist churches on hilltops in Texas, it has wonderful youth movements, it has repressive youth movements, uh, it has all of that. So um, Islam has that, uh, Hinduism in India has that, you have fundamentalist battles there of Hindu. Uh, groups too. So I think that's one of the things we we say, don't use any of these to demonize the enemy. Do all that you can to show their varieties and to make it easy for them to be uh, diverse. Okay. Um, You've lived a good long time as a public theologian and a religious thinker, and you quote a lot of great thinkers in in all your works. I, I wonder if I asked you who do, who you think of as the most formative and influential religious figures in American life in in the twentieth century? Um, who, who would you want to describe? Among the well known people, I would have to say the two Niebuhr brothers, yeah. Reinhold and H. Richard Niebuhr, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, towered at Union Seminary and Yale when Protestantism was strong. They both were strong for the prophetic principle. They weren't good at leading you into worship, though they did write prayers, but they were uh, up close. They were the thick of things. Reinhold was a cold warrior. He was a consultant in the Truman era to the Dean Achesons and then the John Foster Dulleses. He's there. But his interpretation of human nature 
On one level, there was a group called Atheists for Niebuhr, but he once said, you'll never understand me if you don't know that I believe in Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he always went back to his roots in in the gospel, um, but they also appreciated his analysis of human nature was so realistic, and uh, his interpretation of history and the place nations played. I certainly would have to put Billy Graham in the front rank. Um, he and I may not have always been in the same camp. We've exchanged a few nice letters and have never had a, a sour word in 30, 40 years. Mm. But um, but there's no doubt about it that I've, I've often thought, I've often said, <laughs> uh, if Billy Graham had been born mean, we'd be in terrible trouble because uh, he had so much power, so many gifts, and so on. One of my distinctions in religion is not liberal and conservative, but mean and non-mean. <laughs> you have mean liberals and mean conservatives, and you have non-mean of both. And he's non-mean. <laughs> okay. And I think you'd have to say that's that's just been an enormous influence uh, on many people. Paul Tillich, uh, the German import, was highly influential theologically. But I really think that uh, people whose names you'll never know uh, were Right, and who are some of those that are important to you? Um well, a custodian at a high school I went to. Yeah. Um, they, you, you could come there in the morning, and as busy as he might be pushing a broom, he read your face better than the counselors did as mm-hmm. to what your trouble was. Uh, I'm sure my brother and sister uh, would join me in saying, uh, our own father. Uh, we just, uh, I always tell people I can never write a memoir because I have nothing to be edible about. Uh, <laughs> memoirs are interesting only if you really <laughs> fought mom or dad. <laughs> and we were... Uh, well nurtured, and uh, the example of uh, of his uh, uh, fairness, uh, his teaching, his uh, music, his piety. Uh, nobody comes even close to him as an influence on on us, and we try to impart that on the generations that that follow us. Uh, I personally have a lot of interest in the arts, and I've hung out with uh, people who are in music. Um, Recently, I was a dedication of a new organ in honor of Paul Manz, M-A-N-Z, a great, great organist who brought back something that is corny sounding as hymn singing into the great cathedrals. And uh, he and I have been on a couple of CDs together. I assure anybody listening that I don't sing and narrate. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, certainly uh, Paul Manz uh, would be in my front rank of people who, who shaped me. A theologian named Joe Sittler. Uh, not among the best-known theologians in America, blind in the last years of his life, nearly deaf, uh, had a way with words and a way of discernment and a good-humored understanding of uh, ethics that uh, really made the world <laughs> uh, richer for me. Um, you you mention uh, you often mention a Dutch philosopher, uh, Hussey. I can't Eugen Rosenstock Hussey. That, oh yes. How, how do you say his yeah. name? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Eugen Rosenstock Hussey, mm-hmm. uh, who was a Swiss German uh, Jew and Christian. Mm. <laughs> um, he's one of those geniuses that you can quote twenty pages of, and then the twenty-first page is so nutty you're not sure you can use him. <laughs> but I'll give a quick illustration okay. of what I get from him. For example, he he says, and this is extremely important in my life. He says you can write the history of learning in the Western world in three Latin phrases. The first is in Latin, credo ut intelligam, I believe in order that may understand. It's the birth of the universities in Europe, Bologna, Paris, Oxford. Um, you, you believed to apprehend the universe, truth is divinely revealed and can be appropriated. And that's the charter that the believers should never be afraid of learning. Secondly, 
modern learning, without which we couldn't do, was um, Descartes, René Descartes. Mm -hmm. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Modern university is born on skepticism and doubt and inquiry and criticism. And you want that. I don't want a med school in which... Uh, they're just taking things on faith. I want them to be right. <laughs> extremely critical. And then, but he said that, too, gets sterile. And so he says in the 20th century um, that we also have to learn the truth has a social character. We learn. I'm learning from this conversation with you. Uh, we learn from conversing with someone else. We learn from the meaning of I and thou. And his third motto was respondio etsi mutabor. I respond, although I will be changed. I'm not changed when I argue with somebody because I know an answer and i got to defeat them. I'm always changed in a conversation because they're going to surprise me. It's kind of a game. It's kind of play. Mm. And I think that that's the kind of learning we need more in, in the churches, in theology, in politics, and in personal life. Mm. And I think you are a public theologian, and uh, that's not a phrase we hear very often. Of all the people you just mentioned, Reinhold Niebuhr, it's quite astonishing to me how he is cited as an example and quoted on, and on all sides of any debate, right? I've, I've heard him <laughs> quoted by people rapidly on both sides of the current war in, in Iraq. Mm -hmm. um, but somehow, even having said that, I, I think that when Niebuhr's uh, words are invoked, it does exalt the discussion, who, um, mm -hmm. and, it, and, it, and it, it, it supposes that there might be a very constructive and important place for yes. religious ideas and for theology as part of the mix of ideas with which we confront large public issues. I want to. So I've asked other people this question. I, I, you know, there's often this sense. Well, where is Niebuhr now? Who mm -hmm. is Niebuhr now? I wonder how you think about where the voices like that are to be heard these days in new generations. Well, first of all, I think um, genius has only come every couple centuries, and uh, genius is in a particular track. And so we can't say nothing can happen until then. We do have fine public theologians. I think, for example, of Robert Bella. Mm -hmm. who uh, coined the phrase in our time of civil civil religion, studying the ways in which uh, religion and the public order come together. He is a uh, Christian church person. He's a social critic. He's a um, profoundly uh, pious person. Um, there are just any number of people like that, and I could summon them, and yet uh, I think pluralism <laughs> does things in. It's a lot harder to be the public theologian who addresses everybody Okay. Uh, as when they were in tech. So pluralism uh, my, makes it harder for a figure like Reinhold Niebuhr to have the stature he had in the authority? He had an automatic audience that he could chide if he wanted to. Right. Today you have to gather an audience. My colleague next door at the University of Chicago for many years, uh, many people, I may be prejudiced, but you know, look it up, uh, David Tracy, Father mm -hmm. David Tracy. Mm -hmm. They'll say he's number one. The parish down the street wouldn't have the faintest idea uh, who he is, and they probably wouldn't understand him if they did get close. He can right. preach very clear homilies. He can um, preach the Christian good news of Jesus Christ. He can talk about the virtues of the church. But when he does his formal theology, it is, it's a complex world he's relating to. There's a lot of good thought going on in religion, Christianity, Protestantism, and medical ethics. Mm -hmm. Modern medical ethics was sort of born among Protestant ethicists in the 50s. Some of them, some of them are still around. Uh, James Gustafson would be a sample. Right. Uh, these are pace setters in all their world. But if you're not in medical in ethics, world, yeah. you don't ever hear of them. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think someone like Bonhoeffer, uh, the German theologian, the 20th century German theologian, would, you know, might be looking at, for that kind of authoritative voice, but not among theologians. I mean, do, do, you, do, you, do you think you hear that voice in other unexpected places? I'm moved by many kinds of people who write important books, but I can't put up a, a gallery of which 10 Nobel Prize winners, which 10 Pulitzer mm-hmm. Prize winners speak to a whole public. Yeah. Um, the astrophysicist isn't talking to the biologist who isn't talking to the political scientist, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have some celebrities that can transcend them. You have some people who can write popular books, but the people who are doing the formulating, like uh, Bonhoeffer or Niebuhr, um, you, you first have to... Uh, conjure up your audience. You have to gather them around your charisma, mm-hmm. your personality, uh, your luck, <laughs> your staging, and so on. I'm not pessimistic about that uh, aspect at all. I uh, read, well, my wife kept track once. We were in South Africa for six weeks. We came back. There were 200 different periodicals had come through our mail <laughs> slot. Um, I, I distill a lot of this for a newsletter I put out, and I have a good conscience to do all that reading. And I, I must say, every fortnight, I'm reading something that really moves me. Um, and, I, and I put it away into my brain, I hope, and uh, put it to work. But it's not that just one or two okay. stand out that much. Okay. okay. I want to ask you about a couple of um, some words that you quoted and why they are meaningful for you, what they mean to you. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, here, you, Dean Allen Jones at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. He said, you heard him say, we are a society in which everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. And then you commented, to the degree that that observation is in place, I believe it to be broadly accurate. It is, it is a reversal of the Protestant witness. Talk to me about that. Okay. The Protestant witness doesn't start with uh, permitting everything. There are the Ten Commandments. There are the two laws of love of God and neighbor in Christ. There's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's a, a long tradition of things, and so you know when you're stepping over a line. In our culture, um, anything goes in, in media and uh, in, in many other respects. Uh, everything is permitted. The Wall Street Journal front page every day has a story of another company in which the management said uh, we can get away with it and we'll get away with it. But <laughs> we also then when something shows up, are utterly unforgiving. Mm-hmm. Political candidates uh, with one slight thing happening somewhere in their past is going to be dug up, and and uh, 51% of the people will say uh, it's awful. Um, there, I think there's an impulse. What is it, why do people buy celebrity biographies, and why do they not buy them if they're not revealing a really salacious, right. weird stuff? Well, we're more... We're more superior. We're not going to forgive that rock star. We're not going to forgive that singer. We're not going to forgive that athlete uh, because uh, we're better than they are (laughs) along the way. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a reversal here in that um, there are standards, but you're the main breaker of the standards, and uh, forgiveness is a great theme. I'm I'm a Lutheran, and and we can't even get four sentences out without talking about uh, the forgiveness of God. But it's always tied by Jesus into... Uh, the Lord's Prayer, forgive as we forgive others. You can't bring your gift to the altar unless you have made peace with somebody else. And I think that is a really classic uh, Protestant theme 
and it isn't winning its way in our culture right now. It has to be newly voiced and newly practiced. It sort of comes back to your distinction between um, not liberal and conservative, but mean and non-mean <laughs> <laughs> religious so. people in our culture. You, you also one of your most recent works is a is a, a biography of Martin Luther in the Penguin series, and uh, you at the very beginning of the book you you repeat something, uh, and maybe this is related to what you were just saying that you say was kept on the wall of a president of St. Olaf College, a saying of Luther, God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. I mean, what does that mean, be a sinner and sin boldly, that Martin Luther was saying? And what does that have to do with us today? (laughs) Okay. Well, you have to get used to him. Uh, He he was never not extreme in his in his uh, voicings. Um, by the way, uh, I'm glad I did that because somebody sent me the most beautiful red sweatshirt with gold sewn letters with that whole passage on it. Mm. So I can go to parties now and uh, say sin boldly. Um, <laughs> well, you have to have both parts of the sentence. Here's where it really comes from. Uh, people like his best friend, his closest associate, uh, Philip Melanchthon, were very much in the do I dare camp. Uh, sniveling, uh, scrupulous. Luther had been that way in the uh, monastery himself. He confessed for six hours at a time and really boring sins. There was no sex. There was no embezzlement. <laughs> he just was boring. And uh, and he was so preoccupied with that, it didn't make much sense. Well, his children's tutor, uh, George Weller, was, um, we would say, clinically depressed. What did Luther say to him? you got to get over looking at yourself all the time that way. You should go out. You should uh, drink. You should dance. Uh, sin a little bit. Uh, not too much. But if you're going to sin, sin boldly, mm-hmm. by which he meant uh, get it off your back. He certainly isn't saying commit adultery or steal or kill. He's saying stop looking inside yourself so much, um, but uh, rely on the grace of God. Hmm. And I mean, sin is a, is a difficult word for people in the 21st century also. So that, but that that saying of Luther sort of turns it around a bit. Well, I th- I think it's good to bring the word sin in. Um, if you watch the papers, everybody who gets caught by by those of us who aren't going to forgive them always says, "I made a mistake," <laughs> or "I may have made a mistake," or a, "a mistake happened," or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's not uh, therapeutic or helpful. A human condition is is best off when we acknowledge uh, far we fall short throw yourself on the mercies of God and the neighbor, make restitution, and have a wonderful new life. Um, in in our tradition, again, you mentioned Martin Luther. Uh, I wake up in the morning following his call. Uh, you make the sign of the cross. You say a little prayer. Uh, you repent for what yesterday was, and you are free. And if you're haunted by guilt and worry and so on, uh, if you've made restitution anybody else, uh, that's your your that's your hard luck. You better go out and sin and sin boldly so you'll forget about yesterday. You're not supposed to worry. Mm-hmm. One little note of reversion. Now that you brought him up, by the way, you asked about <laughs> okay. how we were how we were brought up, and it'd be autobiographical. Mm-hmm. When I got this assignment to write the biography of Martin Luther, my brother, who is our historian and a family archivist, turned up that in uh, when I was in eighth grade, I wrote an 18-page biography of Martin Luther. <laughs> it uh, followed the same general plot of the one I wrote at age 75, but uh, it had children's details in it. But we were nurtured in that tradition. Okay. I, I, yes. All right. 
Oh, good. I want to, I want to ask you, um, in closing, I think, um, you've done a lot of projecting in your life. I mean, I found one book written in 1971 where you were projecting the church in that century, and, and uh, there was projecting in the Fundamentalism Project. I wonder what you have been... Um, wrong about that as you look back and and also I wonder as you look forward where are you finding your hope and nurture well on the looking ahead it's a very foolish thing for a historian to do because we have nothing to say until something's happened I mean our specialty is the past but when you're involved in the worlds in which I'm involved you do hang out with the people who do projecting and you go along with them Uh, my biggest misses were I didn't foresee uh, three huge things. One, the um, explosion of evangelicalisms. Number two, the highly individualized spirituality of which you spoke earlier. The people who are on a spiritual search, but they're doing it at the coffee shop at the mega bookstore, or they're doing it in a little uh, chanting group, and they're not doing it in in the churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's certainly a force I hadn't uh, foreseen. And then I think the... um, the vitality that has come with the new pluralism, and that's because I did a lot of writing before 1965 uh, when the immigration laws changed. Um, that's another can, one of those points in the 60s that you that you say how important that was for our religious life that we never talk about as a turning point in the 60s. Well, it's huge. It was yeah. the year of the Selma March. It was the year of the uh, right. <laughs> engagement in Vietnam. It was the year of all the LBJ Great Society uh, legislation. Mm-hmm. And Congress made a little change in the immigration laws after 41 years. And it was just in time for all the boat people. It's just in time for people from Africa to come direct. Uh, and so on, and uh, that that was just a huge change uh, because I was it gave involved... rise to a pluralism and multiculturalism in a all in yes, a way. Yes, it, mm-hmm. it it makes new demands on hospitality, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewiston, Maine, suddenly has uh, people from Somalia, um, Minneapolis, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, family members everywhere I go. Uh, I once spoke in Eastern Iowa. And they said, well, you live in pluralism. I said, what is the oldest mosque in America? It's in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And they have Postville Lubavitcher Jews north of them, and they have Transcendental Meditation south of them, and they have Gypsies east of them, and Amish west of them. Um, That's the America we have. And when you go to a hospital today, your doctor is probably Pakistani, and your nurse is Philippine, and your uh, clinician is Jewish, etc. That's our future. It doesn't mean they're going to overwhelm. I don't mean that at all. Buddhist and Hindu growth in America could continue at its present pace, and the 85% of people who identify themselves Jewish and Christian tradition will have shrunk to about 83% in 15 years. That's how big a head start Mm -hmm. the old line has. But but it changes the coloration of everything, and I think you can see that after 9-11. Whoever thought of saying Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Muslim, and suddenly the next Hmm. day, uh, out of generosity, out of fear, out of political finesse, out of uh, new awakening, uh, that just became a part of the vocabulary of government and uh, business and so on. Mm-hmm. That, it doesn't mean it's all easy. It doesn't mean everybody likes everybody. But it does mean that your interpreting is being done on a larger scale. And again, the two biggest of those, and I guess you could say I probably didn't foresee that either, <laughs> since we're talking about what I didn't foresee, <laughs> is that half of everything we're talking about today is done by women. Right. And that was not true in the 50s. When I was writing the third volume of my three-volume work on American religion, I said to my class, half of whom were women, help me out. I need women who are big in religion in the 50s. I can't have an index of all men. (laughs) And they couldn't find hardly anybody. Hmm. 
uh, and then uh, one of them said, I'll bet they were seething. And I said, okay, Julie, you're going to write a history of seething women of the 50s. And she found interesting stuff. Huh. <laughs> Anne Marl Lindbergh, uh, right. uh, Catherine Marshall, all these people whose husbands are up front and they're seething. They were all ready to change along the way. So I didn't foresee how sudden and uh, total that is. It's hard to think your way back hmm. to when very few women added work outside the home if they had children at home. Hmm. And I think the... It's a piece um, of pluralism the, we don't really think about um, because in terms of how people are active in our public life, women yes. are more of a force in that way. Oh, yes, and yeah. and also African-American and now more and more, and more Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, today's Catholicism is uh, one-third uh, Hispanic and America will soon be one-fourth that. Um, most of them are Christian. Great numbers are Catholic. Others are Pentecostal. But they do it in a different style. And um, you you just wouldn't dream of putting on a civic program that has religious music in it if you didn't have a gospel choir and the African-American churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't known. Uh, my early books, uh, everything every time a, a, a black was in them, it was something whites were doing to them or for them. Mm. Uh, we didn't know who was in them. Mm. Well, today, some people say the top preacher in America is Jim Forbes at Riverside right. Church. Or Peter uh, Gomes were, at Harvard. Peter Gomes at Harvard, <laughs> right there. You got, got yeah. to him. You're talking about yeah. who are public theologians. Right. Uh, I didn't mention them, but they are enormously influential and gifted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wouldn't have been uh, seen as anything but pastors to a little local black church mm. in the 1940s. I think I, I, just, I want to ask you one more question because we've, we've been given a couple more minutes, if you're all right with that. Sure. Okay. Um, looking at, at the... <laughs> I think that there is a real sense among many people in our time that the whole relationship between separation between church and state, as we define that, it's not really just church and state anymore, right? It's mosque, synagogue, and church and state and, and many other variations of religious expression, but that that is shifting profoundly, um, and, and particularly perhaps with the Bush administration and all the mobilized religious people in the Republican Party now. But I wonder with your perspective as a historian, you know, how new, how profound is this shift? And, and, and how do you view this? As, do you view it as constructive, as, as threatening, as uh, transitional? On one level, the image of the wall of separation never worked. Uh, we did never have a wall. For example, uh, tax exemption of churches probably pays more to the churches in America than being established in governmental churches in Europe ever did. Uh, it's a huge largesse. There isn't a single person in Congress who could get elected there if part of her plan were to remove tax exemption. So that's not a wall. I like um, James Madison's word, there's a line of distinction, a line of hmm. separation between religion and civil authorities. And we've had that. And now there, I, I think of it more too as zones. Uh, most people know when you've really overstepped. Um, nobody, most people don't want religion utterly in the box. When the astronauts looked at the Earth on Christmas Eve, and didn't read the dials to us. They read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think Madeline Murray O'Hare and one or two other people protested. But most people <laughs> thought, that's, that's great. Mm-hmm. And when you have uh, the space shuttle disasters, the president gets up and is at his most eloquent, invoking uh, religious language. Well, if you read real separation of religion and the state, you wouldn't do that. Um, it gets uh, more complex in some other areas. I'll come to that in a few seconds. I think your question implies an answer. There is much more eroding of that line than there had been. 
I think there, uh, across the board there's more friendliness to the good that religion can do. Uh, we don't yet have details on whether faith-based is really producing all that much, but we admire the fact that you can put tax funds to work through people who are religiously motivated. Uh, the problem comes in, though, in that, uh, you know, when you're overstepping that zone, uh, when you're using tax funds to proselytize, to evangelize, mm-hmm. to engage in prayer and liturgy and religious education. And I think some testing is going on in that front that has uh, become problematic. I think, though, uh, again, uh, many of us who are nervous about crossing the line uh, are also interested in religion and public life. I'm all for the teaching about religion in public schools. I think um, you should know that uh, Martin Luther King was a black Baptist and what that did for him. Mm-hmm. You should know why the Puritans came. You should know why your Hindu neighbor does something uh, different. But a lot of people want to convert that and say, but we should teach the majority religion as the truth about life. And we should worship in that tradition. And that's where we... Uh, get nervous, and yet there's a strong popular appeal. If only we had prayer amendments, if only we had stipulated prayer. And here's where a Protestant of the old school, (laughs) or a real Protestant, would say, watch out, uh, give religion privilege, and it gets corrupt. And look at Europe if you want a sample of that. So in, in my view, religion has its place all over the public sphere, as long as it is persuasive and voluntary. And the minute it gets to be coerced and privileged and assumed, um, somebody's going to run it at the expense of others, or it'll get fat and corrupt. And I think uh, we are going to see, as the question implied, more friendliness across the boundary of faith-based and other-based. But I think when it's overdone, we're also going to have more people speaking in language of caution. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add to anything we've talked about? You did ask me to project in the future, and I'm not, oh. um, I, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. <laughs> you don't have to project it. Where do you look for nourishment and hope in, oh, in that's our public right. life today? Yeah, where do you look around and yeah. say, this is exciting, I'm excited to live into this. I'm happy for my grandchildren to be living in this time. Most important thing in my world, when I mention public life, I don't mean only politics. A lot of people equate the two. Politics is one branch of it. Public life is town meeting. It's the mall, it's the supermarket, it's the college, it's all those things. And uh, I'm greatly cheered by uh, artists, by musicians, by um, people who live out their vocation. It's almost a hobby for me to to uh, pursue people who just never get their name in print and do heroic things. Hmm. I'm cheered by, I, I, I never know how to speak without proper nouns, I like a group called Opportunity International, which is one of a number of micro uh, economic uh, ventures around the world that uh, lends money, uh, put 140,000 people around the world to permanent work last year. Now, they're religiously motivated people, and they give me tremendous hope, as do the people on the other end, uh, 92% of whom pay their loans back in two years, hmm. which inspires me. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, I uh, In the city where I live, Chicago, uh, there are all kinds of groups that... Um, uh, provide leadership in the inner city without condescension, without uh, uh, imposing on them. There are others that train people uh, in one of these groups, the Christian Industrial League, trains people, mainly uh, Mexican men, to start their landscaping companies and women to start their uh, their uh, homemaking uh, companies. 
not just to do the work, but to start companies. Hmm. And uh, and they plant the flowers that we see in the city of Chicago. Come see them. Hmm. Uh, I'm delighted by seeing uh, the transformation of my own city into such a beautiful place. I, I love the arts. I love beauty. And uh, family is very important. I draw nurture from the family. We uh, One daughter-in-law said, you Martys don't have... Uh, uh, family reunions, you have seminars, we get together, <laughs> we have so many different interests, and, and that's fun, and that's both a faith nourishment and a uh, and an enjoyment nourishment. Um, we love friends, I can't say enough, I once wrote a book about friendship. Uh, in a cold, brutal world, uh, you can't do much better for somebody else than to stimulate friendship, mm. and the model there again is, is God. Um, as uh, distant as God's supposed to be, God also condescends and is our three o'clock in the morning friend. So I'm nurtured by all those kinds of things. Hmm. That's great. Thank you. I'm glad I asked. And tell me, um, if you were going to, I mean, on the website, we'll recommend your books. Um, Mm -hmm. You've written so many of them. What are your favorites? Or if you think of all your body of work, what are the books that you you feel have been most important and most meaningful? Well, what we're talking about, I would think that if somebody wants to know my long view of American religious history, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Pilgrims in Their Own Land, right? 500 Years of American History, because it's the story of the people who made it up. Yeah. Uh, that that would be of, of, of that line. Um, about public life, uh, a book I did several years ago, Library of Congress le- Lectures, that became a book called The One and the Many, America's Search for the Common Good. Okay. Um, for knowing me religiously, I think you'd have to say the Martin Luther biography. It's not about America, but it's about uh, where I am. Yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> and then I have a new a new book just coming out now called When Faiths Collide. Um, it's a uh, study of um, how people who think they belong um, do or don't welcome strangers. And I'm trying to find a model of interfaith life that isn't kind of sappy, yeah. that we're all the same. Uh, you know, you gather once a year, you dance in a circle, and we affirm everybody, and then we go home. Uh, I'm using the concept of risking hospitality, in which you um, you really uh, get inside the world of the other. Uh, we don't pretend religions are all the same. Uh, they have a lot in common, but the uh, vital power, their saving power, are in what Santayana calls the surprising and idiosyncratic stories they tell. So that book is called When Faiths Collide. Those four, that's more than you would ever ask for. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. I enjoyed visiting oh, oh, with you. Oh, Great. I enjoyed yeah. it too. Um, well, we're wondering, you know, well, let's do this by email. Um, okay, we're, we will ask you about music that's important to you to, to put okay. in the hour, but I think maybe we'll do that by email rather than go All right, right now. Sure. Okay. It's been delightful, and I hope that our paths will cross again one of these days. And have you an idea when this will be? I don't. Done? I don't. We're all sort of. You'll, we've got all kinds of things for December right. that have to do with the holidays. It will be in the new year, but probably early, earlyish in the new year. Well, I'm. I am. Everything I said today has eternal value. Exactly. You can, uh, I know. Yo, know, ten years from now, exactly. It'll all be there. I know. And and we <laughs> yeah. will. Kate will be in touch, or or Colleen. Okay. You'll know when this is happening. You'll have a CD and all of that. All right. Okay. Oh, I much enjoyed the chat. Right. Thank you so as much. I say, conversation teaches us. Yes. Yeah. Thank Wonderful. You. Okay. Bye. Bye.